if you are just joining us, then you'll want to know that last week we started a series in the Gospel of Matthew called The Kingdom, where we take a deeper look at the life of Jesus and his ministry, and specifically, we're focused in on the idea of what it means to be a part of a kingdom. That Jesus said, from the very first words that he uttered in his preaching, repent and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so what does that even mean for us? Like, hi, we're fast-forwarded like 2,000 plus years, and we're a democracy, so kingdom language is just like, we don't, we don't do kingdom, right? Otherwise, we'd move across the sea, right? But what does it mean for us as citizens of a different kind of kingdom, as people of God, that when Jesus said, hey, I'm bringing a kingdom, and oh, by the way, you're part of it, that that must mean something for us. So we're taking this whole season of Lent to walk through the Gospel of Matthew together and figure that out, what it means to be people of the kingdom. And so if you weren't here, I showed you earlier that we introduced that journal, which is designed as an accompaniment to the series. There's a daily encounter with the Gospel of Matthew. There's intentional conversations that you can have at your, in your home or with friends or with an accountability partner about what this all means and how you're figuring out your place in that story. But the big takeaway from last week, the big walk away, is that we are part of a grander story about the kingdom of God. God started something with Adam in the garden, and he gave him the ability to rule and reign over all that he had made. He said, I want you to be co-rulers with me of all that I've created. God had a plan in the beginning to establish a kingdom, and he tried to do it with Adam and Eve, and they wrecked it. And he tried to do it with Abraham and the nation of Israel, and they wrecked it. And he tried to do it with King David and the people of Israel, and they wrecked it. But God did not give up. And so God sent us King Jesus. And through King Jesus, we are ushered into this new kingdom, this final perfected idea of exactly what God had designed in the beginning. And we're a part of that story. So I want to step back into the story today. We, we came out of the story in Matthew chapter 4 where we were hearing the words of Jesus to repent because the kingdom was near. And we talked about what it means to be a part of the kingdom narrative, that we are little kings and queens with God as we engage in a relationship with Jesus, that he has made us people who want to rule and reign with him right here, right now, to govern all that he's given us, to take care of all that he's made. He's bestowed upon us an incredible honor. But today, I want to talk to you about the fact that God really did that on purpose. Like, this is not a mistake. This is not an accident. It wasn't just for the time that Jesus lived and then the story ended. But when Jesus came to earth, it's really where the new chapter of the story began. And it's where God gave us a glimpse of the fact that we have been a part of the story all along. Because here's the thing. The people who heard Jesus talking about kingdom, they didn't need kingdom explained to them. They got it. They were immersed in the language. They'd grown up with it from their ancestry. It was all around them with Roman rule. They got kingdom. They didn't like what they saw, but they got kingdom. So when Jesus showed up and started talking about a new kingdom, they were like, I'm in. I'm in. I know what you're here for. I know what you're going to do. You're going to fix everything. You're going to ride into Rome and wipe them all out and put us back as the rightful people of God, and it's going to be great. And so when they heard kingdom, they were pumped. When we hear kingdom, we go, what? Because we think kingdom, and we think, last week we talked about it, one of three things. We think monarchies, like British rule, or we think fairy tales, or we think Disney, right? 
magic kingdom. And when Jesus came, he came to say, this ain't your mama's magic kingdom. I've come for a different reason. And so when God reintroduced the idea of kingdom with Jesus, when Jesus came proclaiming not only that the kingdom was at hand, but that he was the new king, for his listeners there was excitement, some uncertainty, but excitement. But for us there's a question mark, where do I fit in? How can I be sure that that includes me? How do we know he wants us? Well, God wrote us a story to tell us that we've always been a part of the story. From the get-go, just like God sought to reign and rule with people, like with Adam and Eve, and then Abraham and Israel, and then David and the people of Judah, Jesus, from the get-go, as he came into the kingdom, was looking to gather people to himself who would learn from him, and start to understand God's grander plan for the kingdom. And so Matthew tells us exactly how it went down. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net out into the water, for they fished for a living. And Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me. And I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing some nets. And he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Matthew tells us a story that when Jesus came to usher in this kingdom that God had been trying to build from the beginning, he went looking for people. And he walked right down the shoreline, picking them out one by one, calling out, hey, fishing's not so good today. Come follow me. I'll teach you how to fish for people. And dramatically, they drop it all and go. But God wasn't hand-picking through a list of resumes. Matthew says nothing about applicants coming with resumes and applications. From the beginning, God is just identifying people and calling them to him. And some of us who know Matthew's story as the calling of the first disciples, these are the followers of Jesus, this is familiar to us, but what might not be familiar to you are some unusual circumstances around what happens. First of all, most kings in kingdoms are not interested in finding other people to rule with them. In fact, history is replete with stories of kings who are trying to overthrow other kings because only one dude wants to be in charge at a time. If you've done any study of world history, you will know that some of the biggest battles ensued because one kingdom was trying to overthrow another. Kings don't like to share territory. So it's highly unusual that King Jesus is walking around looking for people to co-rule and co-reign with him. This just doesn't happen. And if a king is looking for someone to kind of help him out, all he really wants is an advisor or a yes man. He's not really looking for somebody to do his job with him. He's just looking for somebody to tell him he's doing his job the right way. 
And if you don't tell him he's doing the job the right way, you'll lose your job and you might lose your head. Jesus shows up and says, hey, you, you want to come do this with me? I, it'd be great if I could have a few more people. Like, I can do the job, but it'd be better with others. So from the get-go, Jesus is totally flipping on its head what it looks like to rule because he's saying, let's do this as a group. Let's do this as all of us together. I, I'm going to show you how, but you come follow me, and I'm going to teach you so that you know how to do it too. Kings didn't normally do that. Not only that, but part of the story, and I think this is, for, for me, the human part that always makes me go, what? Is that nobody asks where they're going. Jesus comes up and goes, hey, you want to come with me? Uh, I'm going to go show you how to fish for men. Nobody says, oh, okay, where, where is that? How, how far do we need to go? How long is this going to be? Uh, there is not one of us in this room that would just randomly drop everything and follow a stranger, okay? Now, the way that Matthew sets this up, we don't know that any of these guys have had any interaction with Jesus to this point. It's very possible that they've heard the rumor going around that there is somebody in town who's talking about the kingdom, and so people get excited. This group of people from Israel, they get excited because kingdom, hey, hey, we know about kingdom, and the one we're living in isn't great, so maybe this is, this is the guy that's going to fix it. This is what we've been waiting for. But I can tell you, I'm not dropping everything to follow a random stranger somewhere to do something he didn't even explain to me. So not only is the king now saying, hey, come, come do this job with me, but he gives no details. And yet they're like, sweet, and they go. <laughs> something about this picture is really messed up. Or is it? Because when somebody says to you, how would you like to do something you never thought was possible? How would you like to do something that you didn't even know could happen? How would you like to come with me and be part of something bigger than yourself where we continually draw more people in? How would you like to be a part of that? And suddenly the idea of dropping everything and going doesn't seem so scary and doesn't seem so radical. Because King Jesus is extending a pretty amazing invitation come. You don't have to be in charge. Follow me. And we're going to go do this thing together. Yes! I want to do that. And they drop everything and they go. But here's the third piece about this story I don't want you to miss. See, in Jesus' day, rabbis didn't go recruit students. Students came to rabbis and said, will you teach me? Can I learn from you? Can I sit at your feet and become your student and you teach me all the stuff you know so that I can one day be as wise and understanding as you? Teachers didn't go out and say, uh, I'm enrolling. Would you like to come to my class? No, they didn't have to because really good teachers had people standing in line asking. And Jesus does something no rabbi, no teacher, no leader has ever done. He initiates the relationship. Hey, Betty, I can see you like fishing. How'd you like to fish for something different? How'd you like to catch something you never thought you could? How would you like to make the greatest catch of your life? Would you like to come and learn from me? Come spend some time with me? Let's journey together and find out what this looks like. And with the initiation of relationship, 
Jesus extends both an invitation and a promise. Come follow me, he says, and I will show you how to fish for people. This isn't, if you're lucky, if you're fortunate, if you pay close enough attention, you might learn a thing or two. When Jesus extends the invitation, it comes with a promise. You will learn how to do this. By my life, I will show you that what I'm asking you to do is not impossible, but that you're completely capable. So how about you come and do life with me? We blow past this story in the Gospel of Matthew, and as it's told in other Gospels, like, yep, Jesus went out and recruited some people. Okay. And as soon as we blow by it and pay no attention to it, we miss some things about the kingdom that are integral, which is from the get-go that God is pursuing people. That Jesus doesn't stand around and wait for people to come to him. He doesn't stand around and go, hey, I am the Messiah. When you all figure that out and you want to come my way, I'll be here waiting for you. From the minute he hits the ground and starts to do life among people here on earth, he is pursuing people. God wasn't looking to establish a kingdom where he was the grand marionette and he was just orchestrating the movement of all the puppets. He was pursuing people from the beginning because people were the key to the growth of the kingdom. He wanted relationship because he understood that he wanted us to govern and rule and reign with him. This wasn't an idealistic fairy tale God was painting. This was real life and it would take real people. And so he wasn't going to wait for them to come to him. He was going to go find them and invite them and say, come and follow me. I will show you how to fish for people. The king was looking for people to help him establish the new order of the kingdom of God. And rather than wait for people to ask him if they could learn from him or if he could teach them, Jesus recruited people to him. The kingdom of God is for everyone. He's not looking at resumes and deciding who gets in. You fish? Hey, you're a carpenter. Hey, you're a tax collector. Hey, I don't even know what you do. It's okay. What? Come on. I can use you. I've got a job for you. Constantly from the get-go, the king was calling people to himself so that he could begin to build the kingdom. There's a place in scripture that says that God is drawing all men unto himself. We are watching it happen with Jesus he initiates his ministry by drawing people unto himself. Come, follow me. He doesn't go grab their hand and yank them out of the boat. He doesn't demand. He doesn't insist. He doesn't say one time and one time only. If you miss this moment, you're out. It's just an invitation. Come and follow me. And here's a spoiler alert. Major spoiler alert. Jesus didn't just invite disciples to follow him, but he extended that call not only to those first four men, the people in his most immediate reach, but he would extend his call to all of us from generation to generation because his final words to the disciples were, now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here's what you do when I'm gone. Now that I've taught you how to fish for people, get fishing. 
And the coolest part of the story is as the disciples began to minister, the very first fishers cast their net so wide that it has reached generation after generation all the way to you and to me, which means the kingdom of God is for us. The invitation to follow has come to us. If you go back to that story one more time, to Peter and Andrew and James and John, here's what else you'll notice. Jesus doesn't give any qualifiers to joining him. He doesn't say you have to make this much money. He doesn't have to say you have to come from a certain kind of family. He doesn't say where you have to live. He doesn't say what you've been through or what you haven't been through. He doesn't say I need perfect people. He just says come. There are no qualifiers, only a request. He gives an invitation before an explanation. I don't need you to give me all the reasons you're not qualified. I just ask you to come. I don't need you to give me all the reasons that you think you can't because I think you can and I want you to come. Jesus says, I choose you. From the beginning, as he identified people to come into the kingdom, he just said, come. There's nothing that will keep you from coming except you. I have an open invitation Come and follow me. You could say it another way. Jesus invites them on a journey, and he just doesn't tell them where they're going. Come follow me. Can't tell you where we're going to end up, but we'd love to have you along for the ride. Now, because we know that these men had some understanding about the kingdom, because most of them did in their day, they didn't say yes to Jesus blindly. You know, we read that story, and they drop everything and go, and we're like, what? This just doesn't happen. But they came with some expectations about the kingdom, right? They already were assuming some things about what it was to follow this guy into a new kingdom. And I've already kind of painted that picture. They were oppressed. They had been overthrown. Everything they'd known had been burned to the ground. They'd gone into exile. They'd gone back into their homeland to kind of rebuild. But they were never really the people they once were, the people that their ancestors had told them about, delivered from Egypt and set up to be kings and queens, to go into the promised land. All of that had sort of vanished over time. And Rome had moved in and taken over. And they were deeply and heavily oppressed. So when people start talking about kingdom, when when Israelites start talking about kingdom, people are like, oh yeah, see, God's coming. We knew it. We ride in on the horse and take charge. King Jesus come to town, going to wipe them all out, and we're finally going to be back to where we need to be. They had some preconceived ideas about what it meant to follow Jesus, and so do we. So do we. Many people who will call ourselves followers of Jesus will say yes to the journey with Jesus and carry some assumptions along with us about what that means. Some of us will say yes to the Savior in Jesus, where he will rescue us from a life of sin. And some of us want to say yes to the Lord of Jesus, letting him lead us in our decisions and set our course. And most everybody I know wants to say yes to the friend part of Jesus, who will be our companion on the way. But when you say yes to King Jesus, everything you thought gets turned upside down. Because we, like the disciples, believe that we're aligning ourselves with somebody who's going to come in and push all of the bullies of our life out of the way to make space for a comfortable and convenient kind of faith. I said yes to Jesus. It's about to get a whole lot easier. Read the stories. Spoiler alert number two. It's not true. 
if you go back to the series that we were just in, life is hard, but God is good. And how hard life is depends on where you allow God to move in your life. God is good even when life is hard. But choosing to do it with or without him makes all the difference. Just like the disciples, we have some preconceived notions about what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, I just want you to come. And it was only after the disciples said yes and left everything behind that their new teacher starts to unpack what it looks like to be a kingdom person. And the disciples discover it's not all they thought it was going to be. And it's not all that we think it is either. Matthew says that not too long after the invitation to these first four disciples, Jesus was preaching and teaching and large crowds started to follow him everywhere he went. And whether it was because of the miracles that he was performing or the message about this new kingdom had gotten out and people were getting really excited, all of these people started following him, not just these fishermen, huge crowds. And so Jesus seizes an opportunity. And with all of these people within his earshot and with the king's men having come close beside, Matthew says it very plainly. He opens his mouth and begins to speak. And what Jesus said next is what you and I, many of us know as the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most famous teachings. But there's a better title for it. It's the kingdom explained. This is the moment where Jesus says, hey, now that you're following, let me tell you what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom. And this is what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. They are put down because they live rightly before God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, if you want to be a part of this kingdom, even if you're oppressed, even if you're persecuted, even if you're put down, it's okay. Because you're a part of this kingdom. Blessed are you when people insult you or persecute you or falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So what if people point fingers? Toby Mac says, so what if they call me a Jesus freak? It's okay. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As Jesus starts to speak these words, He's painting a picture of the kingdom, and the picture he's painting makes everybody who's listening really uncomfortable. Wait a minute, Jesus. All the teachers and the scribes and the leaders and the Pharisees, they're painting a picture, and it hasn't looked anything like this. I'm confused. What school did you say you went to? Are, are you sure you got your theology straight, Jesus? Because everything we've been told is the opposite of what you're saying. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, imagine a world. Imagine a world where the most important things are being broken and poor and not having all the answers and being weak and not flaunting your power and longing for justice and not being fearful of losing your life to violence. 
This is the kingdom. And everybody was astonished. You're not going to come into town and take over? You mean I don't have to be perfect, Jesus? I don't have to check the boxes? You mean even though I messed up, there's still space? You mean even though I constantly argue with my spouse, I, I still can? Are you sure? Because I don't have any money, Jesus. I don't know what you're looking for. Like that, that plate's going to come right by me. I'm going to have to go to the temple and you're going to want me. I don't have any money, Jesus. He said, you're not listening. Blessed are they who, and the minute people hear blessed, it takes their breath away. Because what Jesus is saying here is not what we think it is. When Jesus says, blessed are they, what he's saying is, you can find deep joy and satisfaction when your life looks like this. It was often a term that was ascribed only to deities. When they would bless the gods of heaven, this was a term that Jesus was bringing from heaven to earth and saying, listen, even when your life looks like this, you can experience joy and satisfaction and undescribable peace. It's okay if life isn't perfect for you. But here was the problem. Jesus was describing something that all of his listeners wanted and couldn't find. And the pious faith of the, the Pharisees had basically locked them out. They were so about ritual and rule keeping and doing it a certain way and doing it this way and performing it according to the law that they lost the spirit in which the law was given. The law wasn't given to constrict and confine and choke out. It was given to give life so that the kingdom could flourish. And the Pharisees had choked out all of the spirit and only put the law before people, and people said, I can't be that perfect, so I quit. I can't be that perfect, so the kingdom must not be for me, because I'll never get there. And the Pharisees were so proud of their perfection, and they flaunted it in front of everybody else, that there were really two groups of people, the people that were sure they were in, and the people that were sure they were out. And Jesus came to say, uh-uh, the kingdom of God is for everyone. It just doesn't look like what you thought it did. The kingdom of God is for the people who think they're perfect, but they aren't. And the people who know they're not perfect and know that they'll never be. The kingdom is for everybody. You can't really blame them for being frustrated or even confused about what they were hearing from Jesus because just like they were preconditioned to believe one thing, we are too. Because here's what we hear when we hear blessed. Prosperity gospel. And what I mean by that is that for a long time, a portion of the church has used the term blessed to say that if you will follow the law of God, great wealth will come to you and suffering will go away. And I got news flash for you today. Even if we live just as God invites us to, there is no promise that great wealth will come to us and suffering won't. Zero promise. Because if you're talking about wealth on this side, of eternity, you've missed the mark. Jesus says, you can't store up treasures here because you don't pull a U-Haul behind your hearse. But you can store up treasures and wealth for yourself in a place where the kind of treasure that you're storing up really matters. Store up things that matter in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, where you're headed. The larger picture, friends, 
It's not about wealth and prosperity. Jesus says real joy and contentment is possible for people who are persecuted and broken, who grieve, who are trying really hard to make peace in situations where peace can't be found. The kingdom, Jesus says, is full of people who are humble, who are weak on purpose. You know what I mean by weak on purpose? It means you could exert your strength and you choose not to who are humble and weak on purpose, who are not spiritually arrogant and believe they are holier than thou and they've got all the answers. The kingdom is full of people who lament. Blessed are they that mourn, Jesus says. I want you to grieve. Kingdom people are full of honest people who say the world should not be this way and this is not okay and it's breaking my heart. That's what kingdom people look like. People who are hungry and thirsty for a right heart on the inside and not just right actions on the outside. Because I know you know those people and maybe sometimes you've been them because it's been me. I can look the part and not live the part. I can walk it and I can talk it one day a week. And Jesus says kingdom people are full of people whose conduct flows out of their character and not the other way around. Kingdom people are not unimpressed or depressed. They are blessed. These aren't people who feel sorry for themselves because they don't look like the rest of the world because they understand that everybody else's version of the kingdom is wrong. And I'm coming to show you what it really looks like. And if that explanation of life in the kingdom wasn't shocking enough, which, oh friends, it totally was. And if it was to the people at that time, it should devastate us right now. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to be poor. It's okay to, to yearn and ache for the things that don't exist. It's a shocking message that Jesus brought. And it should shock us awake today as the church and go, we've been playing church a little far too long and now it's time to be the church, to be real and honest even when we're broken. So if all of that wasn't explanation enough, then Jesus, Jesus says, but there's a reason for all this. Now that I'm giving you the explanation of what it looks like to be a kingdom person, now let me tell you why it's so important. And this is what he said, because you are the salt of the earth. What good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? No. It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It's worthless. You, you kingdom people, you who I'm calling to rule and reign with me, you are the light of the world. A city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Nobody lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, Jesus said, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. So in that same way, in that same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will tell you how great you are. So that everyone will pat you on the back and say you're a perfect Christian. Let your good deeds shine out before everyone for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Jesus says, listen, this upside-down life that I've just told you about, I know it sounds weird, but there's a reason for it. 
And so Jesus gives two very practical real-life examples, and that's where I want to wrap us up today. The first is this. He talks about salt. Salt in Jesus' day was primarily a preserving agent. Yes, it seasoned food, but more importantly, it helped to cure and keep food, right? It was what was designed to protect it. Salt isn't salt for the sake of itself. It's only useful in how it benefits whatever it's applied to. Think about it for a minute. Salt is not salt for itself. Can you make salt saltier? I don't think so. I can be salty, but that's another measure altogether, okay? Salt isn't salt for itself. It only benefits whatever it's applied to. I grew up in the land where you salt cured ham. We call that country ham. People who don't know about country ham and have a piece of it think it's gone bad, right? Because they're used to sugar-cured ham. But you can salt-cure a ham like we did in the south where I grew up because it's a preserving agent. And Jesus said, listen, the reason that you're going to live this way, that you're going to live differently, the reason that kingdom people look like this is because they're taking care of making sure the kingdom stays the way that God intended They're not people who are showing out or showing off or trying to recreate the kingdom because God got it wrong. They're just preserving what he provided from the beginning. They are ruling and reigning. And then Jesus says, the same is true for light. Because in case you didn't know, the primary function of light is not to be seen, but to let things be seen as they are. Just like salt is not salt for itself, light isn't light for itself either. What does light do? It illumines. It shows you everything else, right? When you are in a dark space, only one flicker of light will not only give you vision, but it gives you clarity about what's around you. It's amazing. You can be in a pitch black. You could cover yourself with a box and put a pinhole in it, and just a pinhole of light will illumine everything around you. Light isn't light for itself. It's light so it shows off everything around it. And so Jesus says, yeah, now that you understand that things aren't things for themselves, watch me flip this metaphor on its head. I want you to be seen. As my disciples, I want you to be seen in the world. I want your works to shine in front of everybody. I want you to be a light to the world. But here's the thing. I want you to be seen, but not seen. I want you to shine out, but when you shine, I don't want people to look at you. I want people to see me. I want you to live in such a way that people go, that kingdom life, that's not very impressive, but I look at this person and I see transformation and I see radiance and I see that it's possible to be poor in spirit and to be meek and to be humble and to still be a person who is blessed. And when that becomes visible in my life, nobody sees me anyway. What they see instead is a reflection of the love and the light of God. So in the same way, let your good works shine out for all to see so that everyone may see you. No, so that everyone may see the Father. Theologian N.T. Wright says that the best way to explain this is by thinking of ourselves as an angled mirror. Most of us look at a mirror, and the first thing that we see is ourselves, and then we grumble about it, okay? We see wrinkles, we see bags, we see the fact, ladies, that you didn't put on any makeup this morning, or the hair that is out of place. I can't tell you what dudes see, because I'm not a dude, okay? 
We look in a mirror and we see ourselves. But when we are to be the light of the world, N.T. Wright says it's more like God is asking us to be an angled mirror. And here's how he explains it. When he was a little boy, he was very sick and confined to his room, but he was very isolated. And so his mother came in the doorway of his room and sat a mirror and turned it in such a way that from his bed, he could see his family coming and going in the house so that he did not feel alone. He could see them and they could see him. But do you know what he never saw? The mirror. Because he wasn't looking at the mirror to see the mirror. He was looking at the mirror to see his family. When the world looks at us, what God wants them to see is him. Now, the, the analogy is a little imperfect in the room this morning. If you're sitting in the right place and I'm standing right here, some of you who are looking at this angle, looking past the globe, can actually see the cross. Some of you sitting at this angle who are looking at the cross can actually see the globe this morning. But the goal is that when the world, which is represented by the globe, looks into the mirror, which is us, that they don't see us, they see the cross. Amen. And yet, when God reflects his love back to the world, looking from his vantage point out at the world, and he is shining his love through us. Can you go to the next picture? That looking from his vantage point into our lives, what he sees is the world around us. And so as an angled mirror to the world, Jesus says, be salt, be light, keep the kingdom, protect it, preserve it, do all I have created you to do. But when he calls us to be light, he's not saying, don't be seen so that you are seen, but be seen so that I am seen. Be seen so that the Father is seen. I want you to reflect my light out to the world. And when the world looks at you, what I want them to see is all of my love and all of my light coming to them. But when they decide to give me credit, when they decide to look at your life and say, no way but God, when they, as the world, look back at you, they don't see you at all, but they see me. Because the work that you are doing, the life that you are living, they know is impossible in your own strength, but it's not impossible with God. Yeah. Jesus said, be salt and be light. Paul repeated those same words when he wrote to the church at Corinth and said, so now we are Christ's ambassadors. God is now making his appeal to the whole world through us. We speak for Christ when we say, come back to God. See, here's the thing about the kingdom. It is totally upside down. To be a people of the kingdom means you don't look like the world, and that's okay. Because the world has been selling you a bill of goods that is cheap, and it's a lie. And Jesus says, here's what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom. Come and follow me. I don't care that you don't think you're qualified. I make you qualified. But here's what I want you to do instead. I want you to live in such a way that when the world sees the light shining out of you, that they don't see you at all. But what they see is the glory and the love and the light of God the Father reflected out to them. And that as I see the world through you, what I see is a world of beauty, a world that I've created. And I see you, who I have equipped to go into the world and preserve it and take care of it and govern it and rule and reign with me and love it like I loved it when I sent my son. 
you will just be my mirror, we can get this done. When people look at your life, what do they see? Do they see themselves? Do they see a mirror? Do they see the Father? Do they just see you? The kingdom invitation is that when God looks at you and when the world looks at you, all that is being seen is the love between the two. Today, you've got to make a decision about whether you're going to participate and reflect God's love and accept the invitation into the kingdom with no holds barred. You might not know where the journey is going, Jesus says, but here's his promise. I will make you fishers of men. Want to do something bigger than yourself? Come be a part of the kingdom. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. And um, it's just so cool that you would look at us and even see the potential to make a difference in the world. That the way that we live could actually attract people to you instead of cause people to run away. And we're just sorry for the times that the church has been a place that's caused people to run away. And today, my prayer for us is that we would be people who live in such a way that when they look at us, they don't see us at all, but instead they see you. Oh, God, give us courage. Help us to take a step of faith today and step up and say, I'm going to be your mirror. Show me how to do it. Break my spirit. Make me humble. Make me meek. Help me to set aside what I thought the kingdom was and to take what the kingdom is. And we do it all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand this morning and worship with us?